We're doing a series, as you, as you might have clicked by now, called uh, Wisdom to Live By. And this evening we're looking at wisdom within failure, um, as I already mentioned. Um, and although most of the sermons we do here, we read a passage and then we dig into it, um, that's the norm here, and which I think is a good norm. Um, this evening is going to be a little bit more topical, so we're going to dip into a, a, a few different stories and so on in the Bible. Um, so keep a thumb in or a finger in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, and we'll come to that um, in a couple of moments. Um, but I, I don't know whether failure is a, is a thing for you. It certainly has been for me at various points. There's definitely been patches of my life that feel like they've almost been defined by a failure of some sort or another, primarily vocational failure. Um, you might uh, be more conscious of a, of a relational failure or a moral failure. You can't draw tidy distinctions between all of these things, of course. Um, but I think most people have some sense uh, that their life isn't all they imagined that it would possibly be, especially when they were you know, maybe leaving school or university and had these huge plans ahead. Um, now, on, a, on an external level, we've already looked a little bit about what, what sorting out our failures might look like. Um, I know, I mean, in the sporting world, one thinks of the number of times where somebody stands on television and, and admits, you know, that their team didn't, you know, we do quite a lot in England, don't we? team didn't really come together in the end and you know people taking responsibility recognizing their role in something going wrong and committing to dealing with it um, we're not going to look at any of that kind of stuff um, in the in the terminology we've been using that's that's the visible uh, that's the visible house that you can see the visible house of our lives underneath there's a foundation um, which might not be so visible and we're going to focus on the foundation and particularly in the area of failure, we're going to focus in on what failure feels like. Um, failure on the inside. Um, that loss of self-esteem, uh, that, uh, that shame, stress, anxiety, some of these ideas. Um, now, having, having worked in the arts world, um, I'm just constantly meeting artists who feel like they've failed because of course to, to aspire to be an artist really requires you to have a vision which, which requires a certain set of things to work perfectly for you to actually get where you imagined you might get the, the, the arts world is full of broken dreams and people feeling like failures and of course Facebook embeds those of you that are in in, that use Facebook. Facebook just embeds our feel, feeling of failure, doesn't it? All of our friends get to mediate their lives to us. They get to edit out the weaknesses and the, 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 the dark corners. They get to present the perfect them to some degree, the successes and so on. And that leaves us with an even worse sense that we might be failures. Um, so with all of that as a place to start, let me pray for us as we get going. Father, thank you uh, that you do fill every corner of our lives. Um, and as we look at this topic, 
this evening, this afternoon, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would teach us, that you would help us grapple with this area of failure in a way that is godly um, and reflects your values and your story in our lives. Amen. Now, of course, the the basic idea that we uh, fail from a Christian point of view isn't that hard to get to, is it? Um, If you think about it, the whole Christian story starts with this twist of sin coming into the world, mankind failing um, to live up to their calling to be God's beloved here on earth. Um, The whole story of the Bible is God's rescue mission because of our failure. So in some sense, failure on a theological level is pretty easy to get to as an idea. Um, The cross could be talked about in terms of fixing our failure. But I think, again, we we quite quickly move towards the external in the way we think about it. We quite quickly think in terms of the cross being something that uh, is a, a legal fix. It is something, forgiveness um, for our guilt is a, is a legal external idea to some degree sometimes in, in the way we experience it. I think it's important that we dig deeper than that um, and sit in that place of failure and say, well, yes, I get that idea, but what does it really mean for that to impact the whole way I experience failure? And I want to suggest three areas uh, that I found helpful um, in this regard. Um, more precisely, three areas in which failure can enrich our experience of faith. Okay? Um, and the first brings us to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. I think that failure helps us to engage with the question of what is meaningful and important in life. When life is going very well and we are full of success stories, um, we live our lives uh, with the horizon of what is immediately around us, the horizon of our diary, of our to-do list, of our targets. Um, It's only when things go wrong that our eye gets taken to something a little bit more profound, a horizon that might live beyond that horizon. Let me get technical with you for a moment and tell you a little bit about something called terror management theory. Now, if you're a psychologist, I'm so sorry. I hope I don't make a mess of this. Um, And and if you just find this whole idea really dull, it's fine. Have a snooze. I'll wake you up in a minute or two. Um, Terror management theory uh, suggests this. It suggests that all of our anxieties can be traced back to the fear that, to quote, we might die without completing that which we have defined as meaningful. And we're buffered from that fear um, by a sense of immortality that we derive uh, from our cultural context, from finding ourselves belonging to something bigger and and, uh, more lasting than ourselves. Uh, somewhere, again to quote, where we can be valuable contributors to the meaningful universe established by our culture. So if you had gone to sleep, this is the moment to come back, because the reason I mention this idea is just to point out um, just how profound failure, how 
profoundly failure can affect us. Um, anxiety, according to this theory, is at root a fear of failure and its implications of how our failure will be remembered and reflected um, in our lives and beyond. Um, and in fact, this, this sense then that failure touches on our fundamental sense of meaningfulness within the framework that our culture gives us. Um, and that takes us to our fundamental fear of death. No wonder we want to make a mark on this world. No wonder we find the experience of, of uh, failure immensely stressful. Failure lifts our eyes to look at the meaningfulness of what it is that is immediately around us. And this is where I want to bring in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a book that we don't often read, um, which I think is a real shame because I think it's a fascinating book. And you can just sit down and read the whole thing in about 25 minutes. Um, let, me, um, let me give you, I think, a, a helpful way into the book of Ecclesiastes. It's this idea of horizons. I think that there are three horizons in the book of Ecclesiastes, and, um, and the writer is in conversation between these three horizons. This is what I mean. So the first horizon is simply, as I said, our diaries, our immediate context uh, and the meaning that we create from what we've got to do today. There is this second horizon, which we've already talked about a little bit, um, which is the big question of life and death, of, of, uh, of our transience as human beings on this earth. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, um, there is this other horizon, and that's the horizon of God and of belonging to an eternal God. If failure lifts our eyes from what was immediately in front of us and makes us aware of this next horizon of death, and life. Failure within a Christian context needs to push our eyes further to another horizon, and that is our belonging to God. So that's the kind of conversation that seems to be going on for me in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is how the book begins. Uh, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. This is, a, this is another translation of the word meaningless in uh, Ecclesiastes. That's that, that sense of a mist that just vanishes. Um, there's a slight drift of air that way, so apologies, wings, if you get the sniff of uh, Nivea cool kick in a moment or two. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or make you high. <laughs> meaningless or fleeting, uh, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north and round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. The place the streams come from, uh, they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, 
there is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Thus begins this conversation between the different horizons of our lives. Um, And this is where the book lands at the end. Um, And there's a lot of cultural references in this little bit of poetry, a lot of which may not make as much sense as it would have made in the in the the ancient Near East. But don't let that stop you from just enjoying the beauty of the poetry as I read it to you. This is uh, from chapter 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the street, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along. And desire is no longer stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed, or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. The prophet Isaiah uh, is reflecting a similar idea uh, from a very different, with a very different emphasis when he says in Isaiah 40, all people are like grass. Uh, The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord, which he has placed in us, lasts forever. So what is your horizon amidst the successes and failures that you'll face this week? What will be your horizon that you'll put your eyes on? Just take a moment to rest, uh, knowing that you belong to God and that that gives you a meaningfulness that you will never be able to derive Uh, from these tasks that will vanish in the mist. The second way, I think, in, in which failure can really enrich our faith is because it forces us to place God back in the driving seat of our lives. When life is going really well and it is full of success, it is very easy to feel like we're in control. We can fix the world. Um, We can play the hero. Failure, on the other hand, forces us to consider who really is responsible for the world around us. Um, 
and that can be a humiliating experience to go through. But it can also be hugely liberating. What a fantastic idea Christians have that amidst any sense of failure, there is one who takes responsibility, who loves us, and who cannot be thwarted. Um, I think the story of Moses is interesting in this regard. Uh, The story of Moses happens at the beginning of Exodus, uh, and the Exodus story um, is God's great revelation of himself in the redemption of the people of Israel out of slavery. But before that happens, there's this whole story about the life of Moses. It happens relatively quickly, so one doesn't really end up dwelling on it. But let me summarize the story for you. At the start, or near the start, by a twist of fate, Moses finds himself adopted into the palace of the pharaohs. Uh, Moses suddenly finds himself as a prince. Uh, He grows up with people obeying him, people listening to him. He grows up being able to get things done. And of course, he can see that his people, the Hebrews, are suffering terribly at the hands of their oppressors. And of course, he puts two and two together and says, I can fix this. I can sort this out. We see uh, him heading off at one point, um, and he comes across uh, a a slave driver who is oppressing, who is beating one of the Hebrews. And of course, he weighs in. I can fix this stuff. And what happens? He ends up killing uh, the Egyptian. And one thing leads to another. He has to escape. And all he can find for himself is to become a shepherd of a a nomadic family out in the desert. Just think about what that would have felt like. That's the lowest of the low uh, for him. He's gone from being a prince in the palace of Pharaoh with these grand plans to save his people to looking after a few sheep in the desert. What an enormous sense of failure. What an enormous sense of a missed target. He's never going to be anything like he dreamed he was going to be. And he has 40-odd years. It doesn't say how long, but it seems like it was about 40 years uh, just working with these sheep in the desert to mull this whole situation over. Um, And by the end of it we find that Moses has a very different energy about him. Uh, You know the story of the burning bush where Yahweh starts to call Moses back, tell him about the plan that he has to save his people. And uh, let me again summarize the conversation that then happens between Yahweh and Moses. Moses, his first response is to say, well, look, who am I? I'm just some nomadic herdsman. And Yahweh says, no, I'm going to be with you. Uh, I will go with you. So it doesn't matter who you are. Moses says, well, well, they're going to want a name. Um, And Yahweh says, well, I am Yahweh. I am the eternally present and active one. And Moses says, yeah, but they're not going to believe me. He says, I'm going, to make, I'm going to do extraordinary miracles through you. They'll believe the miracles. And he goes, well, the, but 
said, I'm rubbish at speaking. And you can see the, the flames start to grow a little bit in frustration in this, in this burning bush. He says, look, Moses, I gave you your mouth. I'm perfectly capable of enabling you to speak. And eventually he just says, look, Yahweh, can't you just send someone else? And the fireworks start flying out the back of this burning bush. Okay, I will send Aaron with you, alongside you. What we see is a very, very different Moses. A Moses who has dealt with so much of, uh, of uh, what he had to deal with in his life, who has found this immense humility. Dare I say, he has lost all his confidence. He's gone beyond where he needs necessarily to go. Um, but there's a rewiring that has happened in him, in this experience of failure. And that rewiring has prepared him for what God has got planned. If what is to happen is God's greatest revelation of himself in the entire Old Testament, you're not going to see a revelation like this until Jesus. Then the last thing he needs is some key player in that, desperately trying to grab glory for himself. Now we have in this story God rewiring Moses in that experience of failure, preparing him to be called into God's plan. So failure enables us to put God back in the driving seat of our lives. Failure is the place where he prepares us to lean on him in whatever he is going to call us into. So, I ask the question, who is in the driving seat uh, of your life as you go through the week that lies ahead? Maybe, again, just take a moment to rest, knowing that whether or not you experience this, it is God, a God who loves you, uh, who is in the driving seat, and he will bring his purposes to bear Thirdly, um, I think that failure forces us to accept our child beloved-ness, if that's a word. Um, it's, it's easy, when things are going really well, to create a sense of being God's comrade, having some right to sit at the table with God. Um, and of course, in our success, sorry, in our failure, we recognize what a nonsense that is. We recognize that we come empty-handed uh, to a father. We come as a child. And it is there that we find how unwavering God's love is for us. It reminds us that our ultimate purpose in life is to be loved. And that is something that we simply cannot fail at because it is God's work in us. Um, and I think the story that illustrates this brilliantly uh, is, is the story at the end of the book of John where Peter is reinstated as, as uh, Jesus' friend and co-worker. Um, as you will probably know, when Jesus is arrested, uh, Peter, who is supposed to be his best buddy, who's committed courageously to going with him wherever life will take him, bottles it um, and betrays Jesus. Um, 
and finds himself watching his best friend die, not having been able to fix that failure. What an awful feeling that must have been. But in the resurrection story, Jesus comes to him um, and embraces him amidst that failure. I've got a friend that did this video that talks about this much better than I could, so I'm going to allow us just to simply watch that for a few minutes. Stories are like charcoal. They leave a mark on you. They can play on repeat in our minds, reminding us of great successes or great failures. I think the Apostle Peter had one story playing on repeat. Peter was one of Jesus' best friends. He considered himself a strong and faithful disciple. He even swore that if necessary, he would die for Jesus. In hopes of finding something beautiful. Felt the line. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter ended up watching Jesus' trial unfold from a distance, warming himself by a charcoal fire. When asked about his allegiance to Jesus, Peter denied it, not once, but three times. And the Gospels say that after this, Jesus locked eyes with Peter from a distance, and that Peter left and wept bitterly. His story of being a faithful disciple was shattered. It was now a story of betrayal, a story of cowardice, of failure. In one way or another, we are all like Peter. At some point in our lives, we come face to face with the worst in ourselves. We all have our own versions of what happened that night at the charcoal fire. After those events, Peter goes back to fishing, his previous profession, a failed disciple to a crucified Lord. And then one day as the sun was rising from his boat, he sees a fire and a figure. And Peter's heart starts to race because he knows that it's Jesus. So Peter leaps out of his boat and starts swimming to shore. And as he approaches Jesus, his clothes sobbing wet, he forgets for a moment the story that's been ringing in his ears. And then he gets to the fire and he sees that it's a charcoal fire. And then his eyes lock with Jesus and he remembers. And shame and guilt and sorrow wash over him. Then Jesus looks at him and he asks him not once but three times, do you love me? Do you love me? A charcoal fire, the three questions, it's all too familiar. Jesus recreates Peter's worst moment, not to shame him, no, to enter into it with him. Jesus takes a story full of tattered pages and embraces Peter at his worst. He loves him, even in the betrayal. The tape that's been playing on repeat in Peter's mind is rewound, erased, and re-recorded. Love overcomes betrayal. 
A charcoal fire has been given a new meaning, a new story, and so is Peter. Jesus doesn't remain at a safe distance. He enters in. He picks up the pieces and the ugly marks that stain our lives and offers to wash them away, to write a new story, one that tells us that we are loved even there at our worst place. When this story, the story of Jesus' unrelenting love for undeserving friends starts to play on repeat, when it writes itself in our hearts, it marks us like no other story can. Just as we finish, I want to tell you one more story. Um, uh, this picture, uh, which Nick will throw up on the screen, has been doing the rounds. I'm sure you've seen this. Um, and, and I think for me, there's something about this picture that captures the experience of profound failure. Um, now, that is not to diminish the experience of being in Aleppo bombings. And, you know, I'm not saying that we can somehow make it all sound okay by saying that it's, we know what they experienced. But I want us just to engage with this as an image of what failure feels like. The world around us having just fallen. Uh, we have nothing left but the blood on our faces and the dust on our hands. Um, I don't know if you know that a little boy you probably saw this on the BBC News, wrote a letter to Obama, Obama about this photograph. And I want to read you the letter that he wrote. Dear President Obama, remember the boy who was picked up by the ambulance in Syria? Can you please go and get him and bring him to my home? Park in the driveway or on the street and we will be waiting for you guys with flags, flowers and balloons. We will give him a family and he will be our brother. Catherine, my sister, will be collecting butterflies and fireflies for him. In my school, I have a friend from Syria, Omar, and I will introduce him uh, to Omar. We can all play together. Uh, we can invite him to birthday parties, and he will teach us another language. We can teach him English too, just like my friend Ayoto from Japan. Please tell him that his brother will be Alex, who's a very kind boy, just like him. Since he won't bring toys and doesn't have toys, Catherine will share her big blue stripy white bunny, and I will share my bike, and I will teach him how to ride it. I will teach him additions and subtractions in math. And he can smell Catherine's lip gloss penguin, which is green. She doesn't let anyone touch it. Thank you very much. I can't wait for you to come. Alex, six years old. Does uh, your sense of failure uh, leave you feeling worthless and unloved? Do you experience that sense of being within the dust and wounds of failure, that being where Christ comes to us as a brother and invites us into his home and brings flags and flowers and balloons. Let's just rest for a moment in that invitation to come, failed and empty-handed, uh, into God's family, to be with a father who is nuts about us.